Chapter Eleven of the Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Eleven. At last, the first seagoing day had arrived, and long before it was light, the fishing fleet lay crowded together at the entrance into the open sea, waiting for the signal flag to be hoisted on the inspection office. Oars struck against one another and creaked. One boat bumped up against another, and at the same time was pushed from the opposite side, and oaths and abusive epithets filled the air. Each one wanted to be first. Then the flag ran up, and crowded as the water had been before, the hubbub that ensued only seemed to make matters worse. Oars were broken, there were shouts and cries on all sides, and here and there a boat-hook was raised as a weapon. "'Will you keep off you?' Oh, hold your jaw! A fresh breeze was blowing up the west fjord from the south, and the fleet now sailed out, rocking upon the long, heavy swell. On the horizon in the southwest, Lars saw something he had never seen before. A mountainous island lay there alone, far out at sea, and now it had risen above the water and was floating in the air like a gigantic bird. He gazed in wonder, for, incredible though it was, he really saw a line of yellow sky between the island and the sea. "'What in the world's that?' he exclaimed, pointing to it. "'That's Vare,' answered Cornelis, "'and if you are wondering at the island taking a trip up into the air, I can tell you that it's looming.' "'Looming?' repeated Aunt Osan, who was also staring, while he chewed a quid. "'That's what it's called, yes.' "'and you'll see plenty of that sort of thing here in Lofoten before you've done with it.' White and tanned sails were scattered all over the surface of the sea. They were making for the same banks to which the forefathers of these fishermen had sailed for many hundreds of years, and the grounds extended for mile after mile along the Lofoten Wall, and attracted fleets of boats from every fishing station right out to the Malstrom, far away to the west.' They had marks on the Lofoten Mountains and marks in the north, by which they could take their bearings and know where the nets should go out, and when at last they reached this point and backed sail, the thin frost haze had cleared, and the whole wide surface of the west fjord lay before them. Far, far away on the east could be seen the mountains on the mainland, looking like a white, wavy line between sky and ocean. Cornelis Gumun glanced in that direction for a moment. He recognized the mountain above Grötö, where there was a girl with a baby, still waiting, perhaps, for a letter. To the west rose the Lofoten Wall itself, high and white-topped, like a row of huge snowdrifts running out into the ocean, and from the little islands and rocks came the noise of breakers and the screaming of the sea-fowl that flocked about them. "'Lower away!' shouted the headman, and the sail was lowered and the oars were shipped, the heavy Lofoten boat oars, that it takes strong men to balance and force through the water with any effect. Heave the barrel overboard! The barrel, with its beacon pole, went overboard, dragging the long line after it. It danced up and down upon the water, and was left farther and farther astern, as they rowed away, with the line rattling out over the roller on the side of the boat. It was now so far off that it was hardly visible, and the grey stream of net with its sinkers and glass balls began to unwind itself. 
Henry Robin and Elisus Hilla stood by the roller to keep the meshes and edges of the net from catching on the side of the boat. In front, Lars and Arndt were hanging on to the oars, and in the middle, Cornelis Gumon was fully occupied in keeping the pile of net clear. It went on streaming overboard, floated on the surface for a little while, and then disappeared, leaving the waves above it as grey as before. Ah, oh, the first putting out of the nets! The fishing has begun! As the headman looks at these nets that are to go down into the depths and bring money up with them, he thinks, perhaps, of the endless miles of grey coast to the south, and the many cottages where women and children wait through the long winter for their menfolk to return with well-filled pockets. Is that Edwin Hansen from Varanget in his slim boat over that? Well, the headman in that boat has three families, he alone, for which his boat has to provide, and the three or four others on board probably have theirs too. So a Nuland boat, small as it is, may be sailing for a good many homes. Some of the children have to sleep under the kitchen dresser, but except for that it's all plain sailing. Ha <laughs> ha! Oh, Edwin, Edwin! There now! If there wasn't one of those confounded thieves of fishermen going right across the seal's nets! It was a Newlander, of course, and when Christopher had finished putting out his nets and hoisted the sail again, he made straight for the fellow. "'Hello there!' he shouted. "'Do you want to sink my nets? Isn't there room for you anywhere else on the sea as there is for others?' The headman in the Newland boat did not even look up, but replied in his sing-song voice, I suppose we've got the rights to put out our nets in the Almighty's own sea. We didn't know that Stotslanders owned the sea up here. You just take care what you're about, muttered Christopher, as he dropped off before the wind and sailed in again toward land. On the following day snow was falling, and there was the same crowding together of the boats as they set sail. It was the red-letter day for the Stotslanders, who were going to haul in their nets for the first time this winter. Out over the banks, however, it was impossible to see landmarks through the thickly falling snow, and the hundreds of boats wandered this way and that, hour after hour, each in search of its barrel. They saw sails appear a boat length or so to the right or left, one going in this direction, another in that, and the men on board quite white to their very hair and beards. Then they were once more lost in the falling snow, and another sail passed close by. They could hear shouts between boats that they could not see. "'Have you found anything?' "'No, have you?' "'No.' They felt that they were over the banks, but were they wandering away westward toward Stamson, or eastward to Kabelvog? They sailed upon the blue-gray waves, lashed by the snow from the low clouds. Some hove to or lowered the sail so as to hold a consultation, others went on at haphazard and nearly ran into a comrade. They groped about blindly, the weather did not improve, and they spent half the day in drifting hither and thither upon the grey water. At last the Nulan man found his barrel, and others recollected how they had stood in relation to him yesterday and managed to find theirs. Damn it all with a limp, was lucky to-day too, and came upon his before the other stadsmen, and as the seal men had put out their nets west-southwest of him yesterday, 
It was easy for them to find their barrel now. The sail came down and the oars were put out, and the barrel was hauled on board. It was a great moment for Lars. He was going to help in the drawing in of Lofoten nets. It might be a good catch or a bad, wealth or poverty. It all depended upon what was in the nets. And now they were beginning to pull them in. Lars hung upon the oar to keep the boat still, but he watched the line as it ran in over the roller, with the water dripping from it. Then it grew heavier, and several men had to lend a hand as the net began to come out of the water. The fishing had begun. Christopher had let go the tiller, and stood with the gaff in his hand, ready to bring loose fish on board. The other men pulled and pulled, with faces that wore no expression of expectancy, but only of being absorbed in getting something heavy on board. Haul away! Haul a ho! The grey heap now came over the roller, the first net. The water poured from it, and the men's broad white fingerless woolen gloves were soon as wet as the nets, but they hauled on with bent backs and stiffened legs and contorted faces, for it was heavy. Haul away! A ho! The chain of nets was hundreds of yards in length, and was now standing obliquely far down in the water. There was no mistake about its being heavy. It seemed determined to go down again, and to take Elesius and Henry Robin with it, but they resisted and hauled on successfully, the rollers swishing and spurting water. But the first net is empty. It has been on a little pleasure trip some score of fathoms down into the sea, and has taken a look around, and has returned to say that it had seen nothing. The six men in the boat understand it perfectly, and if the other nets tell the same tale, what is the use of their suffering cold and hardship on the sea? They went on hauling, and at last something living was hooked on board, the first cod of the year. The grey fish with the white belly, broad snout and dull eyes, looked quite indifferent as to whether it was going to have anything to eat or be eaten itself. Henry Robin took it out of the net and held it up for a moment by the gills with its tail down. A medium-sized cod, but it was the first of the year. Hour after hour they went on hauling, the perspiration streaming from their faces. A few more fish appeared at long intervals. There were perhaps a hundred altogether when the last net had been hauled in. The snow had ceased to fall, and while they were putting out the nets again, it grew colder. The wind was from the land, so they had to tack all the way up to the station again. The cold increased, and the men, who had become so overheated with hauling in the nets, could now do nothing but stand still in the boat and let their wet shirts grow stiff upon their bodies. They passed some boats without rigging, and each with four men in them, sitting one behind another, and each pulling his line out of the water. "'They're cheats,' said Canelas. "'They fish with bait, those fellows, but no Stadslander would ever fool along with such rubbish.' Peter Shusanza's crew had fared no better, and when all twelve men were gathered in the hut and sat in the yellow light of the lamp, the conversation was animated. The two headmen were by no means disheartened by the bad beginning. "'We must have fresh fish for supper to-night,' said Peter Jusanza as he pulled off his high sea-boots. "'If you haven't got enough, Christaver, I can lend you a hundred cod or so. That ought to be enough if we take the liver, too.' 
Christophe laughed, saying that when twelve men had made a voyage as long as to America to come up here, they must allow that the fishing was capital, when two boats in a single day could get enough for their supper. Elethus Hilla tramped about the room in his wooden shoes, and declared things were going just as he had expected. He would be a rich man, and would buy a large farm and a thick overcoat when he went home in the spring. Was there any one who would buy his nets, for which he had run into debt? Brand new nets, with ropes, glass balls, and cork. What offers? His white teeth gleamed between his brown moustache and beard, but his big laughing eye had a sinister look in them. I'll buy them, said Canelis. Splendid, but it must be money down, and then you'll have a whole share of the supper, and I'll take only as much as a half-share fellow, but it must be money down. This, of course, Canelis could not do, so there was no sale. "'But we've got a scorey here,' said Peter Susanza, looking at Lars. "'You must fetch some brandy-man and treat us, for upon my word we need something to cheer us up.' Lars tried to laugh the suggestion away, for he would never ask his father for money to buy brandy, as long as the fishing was so bad. They tried to keep their spirits up, but as the evening wore on, their chins sank lower on their breasts. It was hardly likely that they would sleep well to-night, for they would probably dream of being sold up. The beginning was bad, and supposing it did not improve, what then? Henry Rabin related, however, how, the last time that the fishing had been very good, nothing was taken throughout Lofoten all that January and half of February, but that then the cod came in on their way out to sea, and there were so many taken in a fortnight that the fishermen made more than they could ever remember having made before. "'So we mustn't be anxious,' he said, stroking his blonde moustache and glancing from one man to another. Next morning they awoke to find that the weather was such as to prevent their going out. The storm raged all day, ships broke from their moorings in the bay and were thrown upon the islands, the forest of masts in the sound and the harbour swayed and shrieked, and tiles were wrenched from roofs and blown about the station. Above, in the grey sky, white gulls battled on heavy, stiff wings against the wind, and their cries were like warnings of evil from heaven itself. The fishing station had become a prison in which several hundred men were confined. The shop was full of men in blouses and southwesters. Now and then a few of them would fight their way up to a rock, and stand there with their oilskin coats flapping in the gale, and their hands pressed upon their southwesters to keep them from flying away, while salt spray and seaweed were driven in their faces, making their cheeks tingle and their eyes smart. There was nothing to be done indoors. Nets and lines needed no mending yet, but they would never see again what they had put out yesterday, with such weather as this. It was not a good beginning. No, indeed, it was not. Among the thousands of men gathered upon these four or five rocks out in the sea, there were only one or two dozen women. Some fishermen lived here all the year around, and they have wives and daughters, and there were maid-servants in the houses of the station king, the doctor, and the priest, besides one or two Nuland girls who had come with one or another boat-crew to cook for them. There were also a few married women who wore hats and had a distinguished appearance, and two young unmarried ones, the one a governess at the doctor's, the other a telegraph assistant who wore a pas-nez. 
when a maid-servant or a fisherman's daughter was blown along in the wind she would pass through a hail of eager remarks from the men she met but when the women-folk of the more important men went by not a word was said but all eyes turned to stare if they had only been as high up in the world as a shop assistant or a wharf overseer but it was no use for a simple fisherman to try to make up to the fine ladies there is always a swarm of birds of prey hovering over the shoals of fishermen and they had already arrived there were jews who sold watches peddlers culpators jugglers who gave performances on a large wharf missionaries who preached in the fisherman's house and a man with a barrel organ and a shivering monkey in a red frock there were also agents for the best and cheapest steamer routes to america travellers in agricultural implements and a big man with a sackful of ready-made clothes in front of him and another on his back but what was the use of them all no one had made any money yet it was only the emigrant agent who attracted any interest now that the fishing looked as if it were going to turn out badly again but down the wind came sailing a huge bundle of petticoats and shawls surmounted by a fiery red face emerging from a voluminous hood she was a personage for whom doors always opened for she was barbara the fortune-teller she was welcomed everywhere and was treated with coffee and strong drinks if a man had a frost-bitten toe she put on cupping-glasses in order to draw out the bad blood and to a nose with an inflamed sore she applied a leech and she could tell fortunes both in coffee-grounds and with cards most of the birds of prey lived in her little house at the extreme end of one of the islands where the fun was kept going until far on into the night both in stormy weather and in calm hey there is barbara come here and you shall have a dram you must look at the cards and see whether there will be any fish this year for several days the storm compelled the fishermen to remain on shore and when the local steamer came in on her way along the lofoten wall she reported having seen boats drifting on the sea keel uppermost end of chapter 11